on how CFC began in our house nearly 48 years ago. Every genuine work of God begins with a burden. God was going to start something. Any work of God begins with prayer, like a baby born after being carried in the womb for nine months. And a burden for something can take even much longer than that. But if you look at church history, let's say from the time of Martin Luther, where for centuries Christianity lived under the darkness of Roman Catholicism, false doctrines of salvation. Martin Luther was a monk. He read the scriptures, just shall live by faith. He realized that what his church was teaching was wrong. And he had a burden. One man with a burden spread the truth. He was opposed, they wanted to kill him. And God has a purpose for a man, it's not easy to kill him. He started what's known as the Protestant Reformation. And uh, preached salvation by faith. But yet it was not the whole counsel of God. The Bible speaks about well, this expression found in Acts chapter 20. Verse 27. Paul said there to the elders in Ephesus, he had been with them for three years, and he says, verse 26 verse, I am innocent of the blood of all men. What does that mean? That means the people he met They could not charge him for not having told them the truth. I'm innocent about the blood of all men because, because of one reason. Not that I told you how to go to heaven. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God is like a, uh, like a rainbow with all its colors. One color is missing, it won't be white. When all seven colors are there, it is pure white. So the whole purpose of God. We can say that during the dark ages from the time Constantine made Christianity the state religion and corruption came in. The first two, three hundred years of us, when there was a lot of persecution, Christianity was pure. Then from three hundred onwards, for the next more than a thousand years, it was dark ages. Here and there, there were groups that knew the Lord. But it was a very dark period of time. 
you know, nobody had a Bible, for example. Then towards 1300, some people translated the Bible into the local language, into English and all. First Bible was printed towards the end of the 1400s. And Martin Luther's ministry began in the 1500s, early. That was the first time on a large scale was proclaimed that salvation is by faith. But Martin Luther still practiced infant baptism. Modest churches practiced infant baptism. And they didn't speak much about the Holy Spirit or about an overcoming life or building a local church. Those things were completely non-existent in his message. He was called by God to proclaim just shall live by faith. And then, of course, the people who follow on to the Lutheran church, they did not always, they were not always as wholehearted as Martin Luther was. He said it. And the same church in England was called the Anglican Church. And there, John Wesley's father was a member of that pastor in that church. John Wesley himself was not converted. In one day, he met with the Lord. He was around 30s or something. And he got gripped to call by God to lead the church beyond just salvation by faith. He preached holiness. He still practiced infant baptism. But he preached holiness of life. That was a step further. Through that came the Methodist Church, which he founded. In the early days, the Methodist Church did proclaim that there were some very godly men there. That also began to decay after John Wesley's death. Died in the late 1700s. Then after that, in the 1800s, God raised up different men with emphasizing Water baptism, speaking together as a local church, brethren movement, that restored some more of the truth. I, I picture it like a something that the apostles built which got buried with a lot of mud. You know how archaeologists go digging cities that have been buried and gradually discover more and more. So that's how I picture it that Martin Luther cleared away some of the mud and discovered righteousness, salvation by faith, and then John Wesley cleared out some more of the mud and uh, spiritual archaeology and discovered some more of the truth that the apostles had. The brethren came up and discovered some more. Here, Paul says the whole purpose of God, that is a huge thing. It took time for it to all get exposed. Then in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, people began to teach the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the early Pentecostal movement. They were really serious compared to today's Pentecostal. They, all these groups, whether it is Martin Luther or John Wesley, people tried to kill John Wesley. <laughs> 
and people persecuted the anyone who started something which was out of the ordinary. All the other Christians would persecute them. That happened to every group. But in the days when they were persecuted and hated, they were pure. But then gradually they became big and popular, and death came in. Usually that's the way. Right from the beginning of Christendom. And then, uh, through the years, many, many truths are recovered like that. But decay came in everywhere. I, when I was in the Navy, I had a burden in my heart. See, the local church, way back in 1965, when I was still in the Navy, and I was attending a Brethren Assembly, but I didn't feel it was really functioning all that I saw in the New Testament. For example, they believed baptism of the Holy Spirit was the devil. They are rather speaking in tongues of the devil, and they did not preach a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. I knew this. I wanted to see a local church that proclaimed the whole purpose of God, as it is in the New Testament. And 1965, I left the Navy the next year. But it took 10 years for me to see that fulfilled, or the beginning of its fulfillment. Like a burden that was in my heart all along, and I didn't know how it would be found. I, I didn't, didn't have to be, I didn't have to be me. If I saw it somewhere else, I'd have gone join it. But I wanted to see something according to the New Testament. Living in India, I, I saw what Christian work was like. It was a scandal. The Hindus would say, you guys are uh, Christians because you get money from America. That's true. A lot of people were uh, sending reports to the United States. All false reports. that so many thousands are being converted and all, all lives. And we are supporting so many thousands of orphans and all kinds of stories. Begging letters went regularly from India the last 100 years. All for money, money, and the result is a lot of people became full-time Christian workers in India who usually people who never had a job. Uh, someone was well-educated, they'd get a secular job. They failed in school, they'd become Christian workers. This is usually the story in India. I hardly ever have heard of anyone who had a good job who would give up his job and serve the Lord. The pastors were all working people, fishermen and tax collectors. So I saw this and I said, we have to show the non-Christians in our country. And remember, India has got about 1% Protestant Christians in the whole country. 99% 1% Catholic and 98% Hindus and Muslims and all that. I said, we've got to show these people that Christianity is not a foreign religion. The Apostle Thomas came to India in around 50 AD. And we had Christianity in India before America or Europe or any of those countries had it. But only mostly in one corner of India. India is a huge country. And, but it got corrupt in India too, what Thomas started. So I was concerned that we try to proclaim to the non-Christians in India, 
genuine Christianity. That meant the biggest scandal was money. People would become pastors to get money. You see, uh, churches would run like any business. They had advertised for a pastor. It's happening even in America now. Just like businesses advertise to get a executive director or CEO. They advertise and different people apply. Different people apply to be the pastor. And the person will choose the company which offers the highest salary and people will, pastors will also choose the church which offers the highest salary. It's exactly like the world. So we wanted to do it differently. I discovered that watching all this in India, that money was the factor. That the worst that was not taught by anybody was Luke chapter 16. Uh, and verse 13. Luke 16, 13. That there were only two masters in the world, and that's not God and the devil. Very few Christians know that because most Christians, you ask them, who are the two masters? It's the God and the devil. But nobody would think of serving God and the devil. But Jesus said, the two masters were God and wealth or money. And those are the two between whom they had to make a choice. Is it going to be God or is it going to be money? Not God or Satan. That choice is easy. But is it going to be God or money? That choice is not so easy. Nobody, no Christian ever thinks that they could serve God and the devil. But many Christians don't realize, in fact, most Christians don't realize that they are serving God and money. And how to discover who I'm serving? Pretty easy. I mean, if somebody says that, I think of myself, supposing there are two people sitting here, A and B, and... Uh, how do I know whether I'm serving A or serving B? I'm thinking of God and money now. Well, very easy. Ask both of them to call me. And the one whose call I respond to, I'm that person's servant. It's as simple as that. A will call me and B will call me. If I go to A, I'm an A servant. If I go to B, I'm B servant. So, for a Christian, can be in a situation where God calls him one way and money calls him another way. He knows immediately who he's serving. Choice made purely the basis of money. God doesn't figure into that at all. But once we get to serve money, we want to bring God in a little bit to ease our conscience. This is exactly how the vast majority of Christians run their lives. They are fooling themselves when they think they are serving God. He said you cannot serve God in money. So, I realized that myself. Can I honestly say 
that money cannot pull me in any direction. I'm going to be pulled only by God, and I, I have the promise, you say, well, when we have to earn our living, sure. But if you put God first, you think he'll let you down? That's why I told us, our Father who's in heaven, he runs the universe. He taught us that if you seek his kingdom first, his righteousness, all the other things will be added to you. So, those were the things in my mind. So I said, if we start a church, we've got to teach very clearly the concept of God in mind. And also, we want to not become part of a denomination, because I never saw a denomination in the New Testament. Paul didn't start Paul's denomination. Each church was independent. The church in Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus. Whereas every church that we saw around, mostly they were all denominations. The other thing I never see in the New Testament is the church having a pastor. You never find it anywhere. Always the elders, Paul told the Titus and all, appoint elders in every church. One of the elders, this most senior elder, would often be called the messenger of the church, as we read in Revelation 2 and 3. But every church had elders. There's not like one high priest, a old covenant. Because one statement, Jesus said, where two are gathered together, there I am in the midst. The Old Testament, you didn't need two. God would be in the midst of his people. One Moses was enough. But the New Testament began, churches everywhere, elders. But in almost every church I saw in India, it was a pastor. So, he said, we want a church where we have elders. In other words, every church will be led by at least two people. And with this tremendous craze on money, he said, well, let's look at the example of the Apostle Paul. Try to copy that. And so we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 how Paul served the Lord. He said, 1 Corinthians 9, he says it's certainly true, 9.14, that the Lord has directed those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. It's quite all right to support a missionary who's in a foreign country where they're all even supported financially. But Paul said, I've used none of these things. And I'm not writing that you should support me now. I would rather die than anyone to make my boast an empty one that I'm not supported financially to preach the gospel. If I preach the gospel, I've got nothing to boast about. I'm under compulsion. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. If I do this joyfully, voluntarily, I have a reward. But if it's against my will, then a steward is entrusted to me. What then is my reward? Paul says, what is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I can offer the gospel without charge. The gospel is free. You don't have to take a collection. You preach the gospel. I went around so many churches, I never saw one church preaching that. Every church they take an offering and announce about the offering. Let's give it here. Let's give it here. Urge people to do it. 
So I will make the gospel without charges, not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So I said, let me see if we can start a church where we never take an offering. <coughs> keep a box there. Because you read that Jesus sat next to a box once and a widow put in money there. So that was sort of permitted. But not putting a bag in front of people and collecting money. Or putting too much pressure on people to give either. Because we saw many things in the New Testament that uh, it was God or, God or money. And unfortunately, as I said in India, money was the primary emphasis in many churches. So, but I said, I, I can't start this. I can't start a work. I had this burden. And so until then, I was just a traveling preacher and defeated in my life. Wanting. Then a Baptist church in Bangalore, the pastor was going away and asked me to be the pastor. And I said, no, I will not take that title. I will not take a salary. But I'll preach every Sunday. Oh, they were very happy. Fine. So I preached there every Sunday. But there another brother was already appointed there as an assistant pastor. I was supposed to be the pastor. If there was no pastor, I wouldn't take that title or the money. So that brother, who was the assistant pastor, and we used to pray together, we were both needy because we were defeated in our life. We did not know how to overcome sin. We knew forgiveness very well. We were water baptized. And we knew that what we needed was the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we used to meet together often to pray and privately fast and pray desperately seeking privately and together for the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We didn't know how to proceed. There were no apostles around to lay hands on us. There was nobody. We didn't want to go anywhere near the Pentecostals. But I remember I once, once went there and they said, keep saying hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Then your tongue will trip and you'll speak in tongues. I said, that's garbage. I, I told that pastor, I said, that's not what the apostles did on the day of Pentecost. Unbelievable, but that's exactly what they teach. And that babbling, 95% or 98% of what comes in the Pentecost church is, is absolute fake. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. It's an insult to God. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, Go to a church and you find everybody speaking in tongues. It's a crazy church. That's what it's called. It's a mad church. I said, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So, oh, well, but we prayed together for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then, a man came to Bangalore who, not a, his charismatic leader from England, He's not this extreme Pentecostal type. I found there was a little more balance among the charismatics compared to the Pentecostals. And I had read his books and I was very challenged by it. So I invited him to come and speak in the Baptist Church Sunday. And, you know, I felt I had been preaching there, preaching there, but I felt my life was so hypocritical that, you know, this man would always give an invitation 
everywhere I heard him, he would always give an invitation to the one rapid mode if he come forward. I said, if he gives that invitation, I'm going to go forward to the church, even though I'm the preacher there, and I'm going to say, listen, listen, folks, I've been a hypocrite. I'll tell you that publicly. Not living the life that I And amazingly, for the first time in my life, at the end of his message, he never gave me an invitation. I didn't know what to do. I was all ready to go forward and make my confession. <laughs> but later on, the Lord, Lord told me that the people in the church were bigger hypocrites than me, so you didn't have to go and confess. <laughs> you didn't have to go and confess that before that. <laughs> and that I discovered later. So, I said, anyway, I called this man home for lunch. We had lunch together. A very humble, godly man. And uh, I said, hey, brother, I want to have a chat with you. And we went upstairs to our house. He went to the upper room. I told him, I said, I never seem to be able to believe. I prayed, I don't know, umpteen times to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I just can't believe that the Lord gives, will give it to me. I said, I'm not interested in tongues or anything. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you. That's what Jesus said, and that's what I want. He didn't say you shall receive tongues when you receive the Holy Spirit. And I said, I'm not interested in tongues. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. So he said a word which released my faith. He said, Zach, it is unthinkable that God will call you to serve him and refuse to give you his power. That sounded very logical to me. I said, right. I, in that moment, with that word, to the word that released faith in my heart. I knew that was what I was lacking. I was always unbelieving. I believe. That's right. God cannot call me to serve him and refuse to give me his power. Then as I knelt to pray, he rebuked the spirit of unbelief in me. It was unbelief that was closing the door to my receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. I didn't pray. I, I prayed for six months for the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to repeat it again. I said, thank you, Lord. You have answered my prayer. At least I believe now that you answered my prayer. Thank you for answering my prayer. I really believe in my heart God had baptized me in the Holy Spirit without any sign, without any experience, without any electric shock going through my body or any such thing. And as I, thanking the Lord, I suddenly found myself speaking in tongues. I had no intention to do that. Switched back to English and again I found myself speaking in some tongues. It's just syllables and I finished the prayer. Well, my whole prayer was just about a minute. Then I asked him, hey, brother, what happened? Did you hear something? Yeah, Zach, you were speaking in tongues. God baptized you in the Holy Spirit. I said, okay. But I was thankful that I had faith for the baptism of the Holy Spirit before God gave me the gift. The next day, I said, okay, if I'm really filled with the Holy Spirit, the New Testament should become a new book for me. I've studied the New Testament already for 16 years, thoroughly. Let me see this. Holy Spirit who wrote this book can now show me things in it I never saw before. I decided from the very next morning to start with Matthew chapter 1. And here, you know, what happens in such cases is 
whatever experience you have, by next morning you begin to doubt the whole thing. Is it genuine or is it just an emotional experience? So I woke up and think, was it real what I have experienced yesterday? And so I started, I opened Matthew 1 to get an assurance. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, and all, all I read there is somebody begat so and so, and somebody was the father of so and so, somebody was the father of so and so, on and on and on. <laughs> what am I getting out of this? And then finally, it's amazing how God works, you know. I read that uh, Mary was pregnant and Joseph was doubting the whole thing, and angel came to Joseph and said to him, don't be afraid. This is the Holy Spirit. Wow. It was like a direct answer to my question. <laughs> in the very first chapter of Matthew. <laughs> in Matthew 1 and verse 20. And then from there, the Lord opened up a whole message to me from the rest of those verses. And said, others would not know that it was of the Holy Spirit. Others would scandalize Mary and saying it is all false and fake. And the Lord said, others would say that up to you also. It's all false and fake and everything else. But you know it's true. Just like Mary knew it was true. That it was of the Holy Spirit. That is not all. The Lord said the Holy Spirit came on. Mary to produce Jesus in her and the Holy Spirit to come upon you to produce Jesus. There's a whole message coming out for me from that section of Matthew chapter 1. Then the Lord said, uh, you know, like everybody would misunderstand Mary. From now people misunderstand you. All those things were literally fulfilled. From that time, I, I was a very respected and accepted preacher all over India to other countries, but doors immediately closed and I was called a heretic and a false teacher and all immediately. I found what Jesus said, what the Lord told me through that passage was true. And then the Lord said, as the Holy Spirit came to produce Jesus and he's come to produce Jesus in you. And he said, the gift of tongues has been much misunderstood, maligned, and abused whilst your land. I want you to adorn that life, that gift, with a Christ-like life, so that some people, at least, will once again believe in that gift. So I got a lot from there, and I was so encouraged, and I went on from there. And then I said, now we've got to preach this in the church. The other brother, he also, the Lord met with him the next day. And so we both began to preach it in the church. Now after four or five months, they, the Baptists just don't like any teaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So once when I had gone for ministry in England, for a few weeks. When I came back, I heard there were a lot of rumblings going on in the Baptist church against my preaching. And so I was the chairman of the board. So I called the board together one week, uh, one day of the week, and I said, hey, brothers, 
tell me straight. If you don't like what I preach, just tell me. I will leave. I will not cause any fight here. I will not cause a split. I'm a man of peace. I will not ask anybody to leave this church. You carry on and I leave and I'll go my way. Please be assured of that. You let me preach one last message next Sunday? They said no. I said, I just want to say goodbye. No. The next day they felt bad about it and they said, okay, you can preach one message. So next Sunday I preached my last message. I said, you guys have come to a moment of crucial decision. It's like the children of Israel when they came to the borders of the promised land the first time. They go in or reject it. They didn't go in. They wandered for 40 years. It was a moment of crucial decision. Same time, the second example was when Jesus came to Israel as a moment of crucial decision. Accept him or reject him. They rejected him. They suffered. Now this church is being offered that is only so your choice. Thank you for this one year that I've been here. God bless you all and I'm sat down and did. They had already told the other assistant pastor, you don't have to leave. But as soon as I sat down, he got up and said, you don't accept what Brother Zach is preaching, I'm leaving too. He was out too. That is Ian Robson works with me. We left that church that day. So I said, hey Ian, what, what do we do now? We got nowhere to go. They have their evening service here, but we'll meet in our house. They don't want us in here anymore. So we met in my house that evening, two of us, our wives, four of us. Some, we had, our children are all very small. And I said, pray. Not preaching here, we're praying and seeking the Lord, show us what is your will for the future. We knelt down and prayed and had a little time together, fellowship. And then. So I said, Ian, what do we do next Sunday? We got nowhere to go. We might as well meet here. During the week, some Pentecostal church had heard that I had to. They came and said, hey, we want you to be our pastor. I said, no, thank you. I'm going to go anywhere near that. And uh, whatever salary you offer, I'm not interested. So we, I told him, we'll meet again here next Sunday. By the time three, four others who had heard about our pulling out decided to join us. So we came together and sang a few hymns. And I shared the word there. And we meet uh, Sunday evening, well, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. We said we'll have another meeting on Wednesday, another Bible study on Friday. We'd have four meetings a week. <laughs> and we never thought that was a burden. We had a wonderful time coming together. And people would come and go, you know, out of curiosity. What's this new thing? Started in Zach's house. Some would come and some would go. Like that, over a period of six years, we met in our house. Little by little. There was a big turnover. I mean, turnover means people would come and people would go. It wouldn't be the same people every Sunday. But some stayed on. 
and we had when we had, whenever there's a public holiday we have a nine o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon a time of prayer praying to God to pour out the spirit upon us there were people who received baptism in the Holy Spirit at that time in those times of prayer that's how our church started first church started the baptism of the Holy Spirit the day of Pentecost before that they were in closed doors afraid dared to proclaim the gospel but Holy Spirit came and filled them and it was not a gradual growth it was sudden suddenly the doors were flung open and they proclaimed the gospel and in a 15 minute sermon 3,000 people were converted. I mean, to convert one Jew, nowadays with a 15-minute sermon is almost impossible. There are 3,000 Jews who are converted. So the power of the Holy Spirit. Start what Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. And the Lord works with them. The Lord, we want that too. From the beginning, we decided certain things about money. Of course, Brother Ian and I, we will take no money from the church. There'll be an offering box there. Anybody? Most of the people were poor. Nobody had a, you know, I had a scooter from the Navy days. The others who came to our church didn't even have that. They would come by bicycle or bus or walk. Thank God we had poor people who came to our church in the beginning. Nobody had a car. That's how we started. For many years it was like that. And uh, we decided we'd never make a, we'd, People who know there's a box there, but we wouldn't make any push for putting in offerings or anything. Because people were poor. And there was nobody to be paid. We didn't have any expenses of building or any such thing. And our children, we had two of them, and later on, uh, Sandeep and Sunil also grew up as little boys. They were very happy to open the, we had steel folding chairs to open and put it out in the sitting room. and. Called them up after the meeting. It's exciting, and everybody enjoyed them. We started a little paper called Hidden Treasures, and Bob shared with I. I would put the articles that I wrote on baptism of the Holy Spirit and other things like that, certainly to see if there are other people who are interested. He prayed, Lord, if there's anyone else who's interested, join us, please. Bring them here. The verse the Lord gave us when he started was. From Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. And he's saying there how it was a time in Israel when people had backslidden tremendously. They had come back from Babylon. And this is some couple of hundred years after returning from Babylon. Backsliding had again come in. They were sent to Babylon because they backslid. Again, backsliding comes in. It's the history of God's people. The revival comes, then backsliding comes after a while. Like I said, with all the churches, you know, big, there's a big revival and over a period of time. By the time the second generation comes, they've gone away. God has to start something new. So, here, that's how it was. It says they, they were offering, here's the mark of their backsliding. They would present verse 8, Malachi 1 8, blind lamb. Or they say, Oh, we have to give a lamb. Okay, here's a blind one. Let's get rid of it. Sacrifice it to the Lord. Or a sick goat, 
a goat or ox. Lame ones, they pick out the lame and the blind and the sick, verse 8, and offer it to God. And the Lord says, in verse 8, middle, would you offer a gift like that to your governor? So you don't have any respect for me. And the Lord says, I wish there was some priest, verse 10, who would shut the gates when people bring such useless offerings. But, the Lord says, I'm not going to accept any offering from you. That's not a word. But, something new is going to happen. Verse 11. From the east to the west. Every nation. I'm going to get, my name is going to be glorified. And in every place, these are many parts of the earth. An offering will be offered to me which will be pure. That means, pure means where people offer an offering with sacrifice. Then my name will be great. So this is what the Lord emphasized to us at that time, that you must offer to God that which costs us something. And that was a word that the Lord had given me almost about a year after I was converted and took baptism from 2 Samuel 24. Verse that really gripped my heart. I was still in the Navy. Second Samuel 24, verse 24, David says, I don't know how to tell it's time to tell you the story of it. You can read it later on. But when the, the farmer who was David's subject said, I give you the oxen free and the wood free and we want to offer a sacrifice to God. David said, no. Christ Get it free from you. There's, I don't pay a price for the sacrifice. I'm going to pay for it. Because I will not offer to the Lord my God, Second Samuel 24, 24, that which cost me nothing. That's the phrase that the Lord gave me way back a year after I was baptized. The Lord said to me, you must never in your life offer to me that which cost you nothing. Never offer to God that which has cost me nothing. Cost means not necessarily just money. It can also be rejected by people. That's also a price we pay. Some type of sacrifice rejected by relatives, parents, other people. Cut out from the ministry because we preach something they don't like. Will not offer to the Lord that is talking. That word has rung in my mind for 60 years. Ever since the Lord first showed it to me way back in 1972. Uh, so that's what I proclaim, and that's what the Lord said to us also from Malachi. These people are offering a sacrifice, it cost them nothing. So we preach that. So, for a number of weeks, we took a Bible study. I took the Bible study. Because by then, God had already given me a gift of teaching. And for a number of weeks, we studied Luke 14, 25 onwards. The cost of conditions of discipleship. Luke 14, 26 onwards. 
first condition, you must hate your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children. And I pictured hate like this. Hate doesn't mean we got to hate your wife because the other place it says you got to love your wife. But in comparison with our love for Christ, your love for your wife must almost be like hatred. And, and the way I pictured it, I like to see pictures when I read the Bible. And the picture I got was my love for my parents and my wife and children must be like the light of the stars. And the stars are very, very bright if you get close to them. Very bright. We see them very clearly at night. And my, uh, not the stars, not dark. There's light there. That's a picture of my love for my wife, love for my children, love for my parents, etc. But when the sun comes up, stars, they're there. Light is there, but you don't see it anymore. It disappears. That's the picture the Lord gave me. That in the comparison with my love for Christ, this will see. I like darkness. Love is there. The light of the star is there. Compared to the light of the sun, it's liberated. And the same, uh, father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, and your own life. Second condition of discipleship we saw there was in verse 26. You've got to take up your cross, and we saw in Luke 9, 23, that it was every single day. Anyone who will come after me, let him deny himself, take his cross every day, and follow me. In other words, Every day, I have to die to myself probably numerous times. I want to follow the Lord. Second condition of discipleship. We took a study on that and I preached those three conditions for 48 years now. Regularly. In every church. And it's not that everybody follows it. We preached it. We preached it in RLCF. I don't know whether everybody follows it or not. The third condition is uh, verse 33, that you must give up all your possessions. And I used to say, possessions are like something I hold on in my hand. Must give it up means I must open my palm and say, Lord, I'm not going to possess it anymore. Have it. I don't possess it. Cling on to something. But this is mine. Or I can keep it in an open palm and say, I have it. The house is still in my name. My scooter is in my name. I don't have it. I, I mean, I don't possess it. And I saw that if you don't have that attitude to your possession, you possess it. You cannot be a disciple. That's where... You know, choose the love of God and love of money. A lot of people love their house more than God, their car more than God, or something else. They possess it. It's tight. And at that time, the Lord, my father had given us a house to live in. He had sold some of his ancestral property and given us a house in Bangalore. And I never expected to have a house. My own. When I left the Navy, I gave away all my savings, my bank, and I emptied out my bank account and gave it away for God's work. God, and I left the Navy with zero. I thought I would live in a rented house, some small rented house somewhere, but here all of a sudden I got this house. And 
that is really the Lord's provision because so we could meet in that place when the church started, we could meet in our house, we could be crowded, but we could put people here and there and accommodate people. And so now that I got and I said, Lord, I'm scared. Am I possessing this house or am I having it? I don't know. But if I'm possessing it, Lord, I'd be very happy if you burn it up. Some electrical fire or something, it's very easy for the Lord to arrange an electrical short circuit or something and burn up the building. And quite honestly, I really expected it would happen. So I said, Lord, I don't want to worship my house. I will not possess anything. I have many things, but I possess nothing. If you ride a scooter, uh, it would turn in from the main road about 100 yards from my house, and I sometimes really think that if I turned the house, corner of that street, I would see my house in flames. My wife and children standing outside. Many times. But that's the way God. I said, Lord, you can take it away. Burn it up. As far as I was, as far as I was concerned, it was burnt. It's gone. It never burnt. It because the church to me. So. The same way, I remember with my scooter, I had a fairly new scooter. You know, when it's a new scooter, you make sure it doesn't get dirty and polishing it and all that type of stuff. And uh, you, I wondering, I was wondering whether I worship the scooter, and all of a sudden. One day, it actually happened. I found a rattling noise in the engine. I said, what's that? And I took it to a mechanic, and he examined it. He said, there's nothing wrong. Rattling noise again. I realized I had not laid that scooter on the altar and given it to God. Lord, I'm sorry. Open the palm, you can have it. Believe it or not, Dr. Rattling. <laughs> I saw, I mean, the God was trying to teach me. And I had the scooter for years and years. I, I I just stopped possessing it. I used it. If somebody wanted to borrow it, I'd say, sure, take it. But I never possessed it. If somebody borrowed it and there was a scratch in it, I'd say, that's okay. I don't, it's not mine. It's not, I don't possess it anymore. I tell you, if believers would examine themselves, we'd be surprised to see how many things they possess. They don't have it. They cannot be disciples. Or their love for their Lord doesn't supersede their love. Father and mother say something and then they get a bit disturbed and say, well, hello, dad thinks like that. And disciple are you? Are you your dad's disciple or the disciple of Jesus Christ? Many people never become disciples. Dad or mom or their wife says something or somebody else says something or their son or something. I tell you there are very few disciples. I've discovered that. But it's amazing what God can do through you if you're a radical disciple. And that's what I decided to be myself and that's what we taught everyone in our church. Whether you're going to be one or not, I'm not examining people's hearts. We took a Bible study on it for weeks on this chapter. Then we knew that Jesus said, after you baptize people in Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples and baptize them and teach them to do all that I taught you. 
the other thing we said. We said, now we have to teach people all that Jesus taught. We said, okay, we start with Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because that's one of the, in a nutshell, almost everything that Jesus taught. And we saw, interestingly, that at the end of that Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus picture two houses, one built on sand and one built on the rock. And I pictured those houses as my family life. My family life can be on sand or on rock. I pictured the church we are building can be sand or rock. And if it is on the rock means you hear Matthew 7.24, all that I say and obey everything that I say, your home will be built on a rock, the unshakable rock. All your children will become disciples of Jesus Christ. And the house, the church will be built on rock. That means you preach discipleship and the church will shine like a light. And uh, those who don't want to be disciples will come and go away. But if you don't, if you only hear, you know, that means people who come regularly to church here, 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 but they don't do. They don't take up the cross every day, for example. Then it will be like on the sand, and there's an expression it says, the rain came, the floods came, and great was its fall. Matthew 7 27. This is connected to these words of mine in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And great was its fall. I linked it up with Revelation 18, where it says, Babylon, great was its fall. So I saw these two houses as. Jerusalem and Babylon, the true church and the false church, a godly home and a nominal Christian home. So we taught Matthew 5, 6, and 7 regularly. We pointed out that there are only, among all the teaching of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus speaks three times about hell. So, Jesus spoke more about hell than any preacher in the New Testament. One who gave his life for our sins preached about hell more than any preacher. I saw the one who loved the most preached the most about hell. The one who loved the least rarely preached about hell. I tried to preach about hell a lot. And he said, the three times where hell is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. One, you're angry with your brother. Say, your anger multiplies. It's guilty to take him into fiery hell. Matthew 5, 20, You're angry with your wife. Angry with somebody. Treating you badly. Anger. Initially, the first step doesn't lead you to hell. First step, second step, third step, hell. Now it is in Matthew 5, 22. And it is equal, you read here, to the Old Testament commandment of don't kill. Connected with that verse. The Old Testament is don't kill, the New Testament is don't get angry. Now, anger, I, I used to get angry with my wife. I didn't have any victory over it, but I still preach. But when I saw this, I say, hey, I want to take this seriously. The baptism of the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see that getting angry with your wife is the first step to hell. Lord, don't care how long it takes, but I'm going to battle it from today onwards. It's going to go. I want to tell you it's gone from my life. 
completely. I think it took some years. I'll tell you that. It doesn't happen overnight. But if you don't battle it, you will die with it as an angry person. I, I, I don't know where you'll go. But then the second place where hell is mentioned is lusting after a woman in the mind. Physical adultery is another thing, but it's equal to lusting in the mind is equal to adultery. I mean, many of us would feel terribly guilty if you fell into adultery. You feel equally guilty. I'm not telling you to feel guilty. You feel equally guilty if you lusted for a few seconds. You saw a woman or you saw something you know, on the internet. Or I'm not talking about pornography. I'm just talking about news items where they have advertisements of half-dressed women and or on the screen if you watch television programs or something. How seriously do you take it? I fear that many people who sit in CFC churches don't take it seriously. They're going to get a big surprise when Christ comes again. In case they are there, I don't know whether they'll be there. Because it says here that dust is a woman, you, you can go to hell, it says. Your right eye uh, causes you to offend. You better to lose lose the eye than be thrown into hell if your right hand makes you stumble. Cut it off. Throw it away. Lest you be thrown into hell. And of course, all the other things it goes on to say about must love your enemies and bless those who curse you. That must have zero bitterness in our heart against anybody. We must have forgiven every single person in the whole world because it went on to say that Forgive us our sins just like we have forgiven others. It's also in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 12. So we, asked, we took Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount for months on end. That if there was a single person I had not forgiven anywhere on the face of the earth, God would not forgive me. I had never heard anybody preach it like that. I preached it like that. It was written there. If you forgive others, verse 14, Matthew 6, your father will forgive you. The big capital I have. If you, what people say is, if you believe in Jesus, your heavenly father will forgive you. I say, yeah. But also, if you forgive others, your heavenly father will forgive you. What about that? And to emphasize it, verse 15, if you don't forgive others, your heavenly father will not forgive you. Matthew 6, 15. Crystal clear. Like black and white. Yet, I know numerous Christians who have not forgiven others. I say, if there's a single person anywhere on the earth whom I've not forgiven, it's a guarantee that my Heavenly Father will not forgive me. I'm not going to be there. I can stand before God for many, many, long, long time now. This has been true in my life. There's not a soul on the earth whom I've not forgiven. It's not that people have not done me harm. who have called me the devil and all types of names and hurt me and taken me to court and tried to imprison me and done all types of things. Spread a lot of false stories about that. I pull people's tongues to make them speak in tongues and all types of rubbish. <laughs> and uh, what do I do? Yeah, forgive, 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 forgive. So this is what we preach. This is how we built KFC. Offering. We put a notice on top of the offering box based on some scriptures like 
uh, you come with your offering to the Lord. There you remember your brother's got something against you. Don't put that offering. It says in Matthew 6, 25, don't give that offering. That's what we preach. Other churches are telling you, give the offering. You say, don't give the offering. You, if, you, if you've done something against somebody and you've not said it right with them, with your wife, you've not settled matters with your wife, don't put an offering in the box. Not settle matters with some other person in the world. Unbeliever, never mind. Don't, we put a condition there. Don't put an offering. You're not born again. God does not accept offerings from those who are not his children. So we put five conditions there. If you're not born again, don't put an offering here. If you haven't settled matters with somebody, don't put an offering here. And uh, you got a debt. The Bible says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and then render to God what is God's. I don't know whether you notice that. Caesar comes before God there. That verse. You all know this. Not render to God what is God's, but render to Caesar what is Caesar's. There's a reason is, if I owe you money, I owe you a hundred dollars. I put a hundred dollars in that offering box. <clears throat> That's not my money. It's your money. You have every right to say to me, hey, listen, don't put my money in the offering box. Put your own money in there. So how can I put my money there till I've cleared my debt? That's why I have to render to Caesar or to X, Y, or Z what I owe to them. Then only I can give to God what is God's. Now these are things which are not preached in most churches. So we took God's word, Jesus' word, seriously. That we want to obey you because Jesus said, if you obey what you hear, you'll build on the rock. Otherwise, you're bound to build Babylon. I'm just telling you how we started. Of course, people got offended. There are hypocrites who pretended, but the hypocrites got exposed pretty quickly. And big turnover. Some would come, go, and some would go. And then gradually, we then we prayed, Lord, is, are there others around us? who may want to come, join us, you know, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. He said, we want to go that way. Start with it, just my house. Few people I know. But Lord, maybe in this town, there may be other people who are interested in a godly life. Please bring them here. Like that, some would come. Then over a period of time, he said, Lord, what about this state? Around Bangalore, which is the capital city of the state. In this state, is anybody? And then next was, you know, the principle of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Any, anybody in India gradually brought, brought us in touch with people in India. Then we still had a burden. Lord, I'm sure there are people around the world, but we don't have the money to send missionaries. We don't have, uh, we're a poor church. And then lo and behold, the YouTube channels opened up we would record our messages and put them on YouTube and about 2,000 sermons of mine are on YouTube now that goes to 100 and something like that, 186 countries or so, where we have evidence of their listening in. So we praise the Lord that our desire of reaching the uttermost parts of the earth also, to some extent, is with what? Matthew 24. relation to the second coming. It says, Matthew will deliver you up to tribulation, Matthew 24, 9. He's talking about the last days. Because that is the question they asked, Lord, when will these things be? When will be the sign? What is the sign of your coming? 
That's the question they ask in verse 3. In answer to that, his reply is, many false prophets will arise, will mislead many, and false prophets are abounding in Christendom, I told you. The people who don't preach against anger, anger and don't preach against sexual lust and don't preach against the love of money, those are the false prophets. I don't know whether you recognize them as false prophets. People will never talk about that, but who are pastors in churches. The false prophets will arise and mislead many. And lawlessness will increase. The love of many people will grow cold. People won't love Jesus fervently anymore. They'll be backsliders. And uh, they'll come and sit perhaps even in CFC, but they won't love Jesus fervently. Their love will grow cold. But the one who endures in love till the end will be saved. Not everybody's going to be saved. One who endures to the end will be saved. And then, this is the verse I wanted you to see. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. Now, there is the gospel of forgiveness of sins, which is proclaimed widely around the world. But what is the gospel of the kingdom? Turn to Romans 14. Got to read every word carefully. Romans 14 and verse 17. The kingdom of God not eating and drinking but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what is the kingdom of God? Not heaven. No. King Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you in one verse. The kingdom of God is right here in your midst. The kingdom of God is the sphere of the rulership of God. And the kingdom of God is defined here as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the gospel of the kingdom is a gospel which proclaims that you must have a life, you can have a life of righteousness, peace, and joy in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can live a life overcoming sin, that's righteousness, and you can live a life where you have peace means freedom from anxiety, peace with people without fighting, don't fight with anybody, and you have peace in your heart, freedom from all, be anxious for nothing. That is the gospel of peace. And joy in the Holy Spirit. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. That's, by the way, in the Bible. Philippians 4 4. Rejoice the Lord always. I think Paul, I don't know whether you noticed that. First one, Paul knew that people would think, hey, this can't be true. So he says, Rejoice. And again, I say to you, Rejoice. I meant what I said. That's what he's trying to say. It's not, it's not, it's not a slip of the pen, by the way. Exactly that. The gospel of a life of overcoming, that's righteousness, is overcoming sin and partaking of God's nature, of peace freedom from anxiety, and then peace with all men, peace in the heart from anxiety, and joy, no grumbling, no complaining, no murmuring in the power of the Holy Spirit. This gospel will be preached. Now tell me, how many times have you heard that gospel being preached? Where is it being preached? On which channel in YouTube is that being preached? Which church is preaching it? Not talking about your sins can be forgiven and go to heaven. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached everywhere and then the end will come. I praise God he opened our eyes to see what the gospel is. 
kingdom is and gospel means good news anybody who hears this and says oh the burden you mean i have to live free from sin all the time like a doctor is telling you how you can be healthy oh doctor you know i have to be healthy all the time no not sick even once 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 a week in a year sick no 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 you don't have an attitude of sickness we would love to have health 52 weeks of the year sin yeah gospel of righteousness joy in the holy not being preached brothers so god gave us the burden i remember the day in my life way back sometime in 1990 you 77 or something of years after this he started i remember the chair i was sitting in in my house still remember the color of that chair and the chair i was sitting in as the lord suddenly opened my eyes to see from second corinthians 3 a new covenant here to the old covenant i never knew that for 17 years of my christian life open my eyes to see what the new covenant was old covenant of sin is covered psalm 32 a new covenant of sin is cleansed john 1 the new covenant the old covenant sin and you're forgiven in the new covenant sin will not have dominion over you to rule over sin the old covenant you have no encounters with satan in the new covenant satan please resist the devil and he will he won't walk away he'll flee flee is a strong word but how many believers have we met in the world who are most believers are scared of the devil devil may do this he does this to me i've heard people say he's the devil is harming my children Where is he fleeing? He's not fleeing from most believers. Believers are fleeing from him. Chasing believers here and there and everywhere. He rules in many houses. Devil will flee from you. I remember the day the Lord said to me, "You were afraid of the devil for so many years, and now on the devil will be afraid of you." That's the calling of every Christian, not just for some people. all these truths came to me only after i was baptized in the holy spirit till then it was all intellectual knowledge baptism in the holy spirit makes these things real like you know you you see a picture of a lovely dish food on in a screen and it's quite different from watching that and you actually eating it tremendous difference so i feel that many people when they listen to sermons like watching a picture of a lovely meal on the screen doesn't satisfy their appetite much well that's how we began and we the lord added more and more people different people we go to different places you know another thing i said lord all the great evangelists in india they always go to the cities great american evangelists and the indian evangelists they always have their campaigns in the cities big cities because that's where the money is and that's where the people are large crowds lord i said i specifically said to the lord send me to the poor people in india and uh, 
that's I had that desire even before she started. And I wanted to get married. I said, I want to marry somebody who loves the poor. And when I heard that Annie graduated from the top medical college in India, decided immediately after graduation to go and work among lepers because she wanted to work in a, among poor the women in India will never go to a male doctor. Again, culture is like that. So there were women lepers there who nobody could help. That hospital, there was a hospital where not a single lady doctor had ever been there in the history of that hospital. She went and saw that and she said, I want to go there. Wow. Leprosy is a sickness you can easily get. Her parents said, don't go there. Nobody will marry you because once people know that you're working among lepers, they won't know when you get it. Because it doesn't come up immediately. It can come in, come up in your system years after you worked among them. I said, no, I'm not bothered. I saw a heart for the poor in her, and I said, that's the one Lord I you. And this, she will marry me. She's a qualified doctor. I'm just a man with zero in my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> She heard me preach, and so loved the Lord, and compared the books, we used to read the same type of books about the way of the cross and things like that, and great. So we, both of us, served the Lord in the poor parts of India. I mean, she conducted three medical clinics for all the villages there for 20, 30 years. So most of our churches in India are among the poor villages, people who Many of them haven't finished high school. Most of them haven't finished high school. Many of them very poor. Many laborers in the fields, but who love the Lord. Many people from non-Christian homes. We're very thankful that God gave us a tremendous privilege. You know, there's a verse in the Bible which says, uh, I don't know whether you've noticed that, to Jesus was anointed the gospel. Have you seen that verse? Luke chapter 4. Sometimes we miss these little expressions. The baptism of the Holy Spirit opens my eyes to see small, small expressions. Luke chapter 4. When he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and he came to Galilee, Luke chapter 4. He came to Nazareth, his hometown, Luke 4.16. He entered the synagogue and stood up to read, and he opened the prophet Isaiah, and he said, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to whom? The poor. You read that? Jesus was anointed to preach the gospel, not to the rich, to the poor. Well, that's what I want to do. You've anointed me, the Holy Spirit. I want to preach the gospel to the poor. They proclaim release to the captives. That means to preach victory over sin. And opening eyes, opening people's eyes to see what's written in the Bible, which they read but they don't understand, and to set free those who are oppressed. Proclaim the fact that the Lord favors you. That's that's the gospel. Preach. So I'm thankful that the Lord gave me the tremendous privilege to proclaim what I believe what Paul said, the full purpose of God. The entire rainbow. The color is white. All seven colors. I 
challenge people who've heard me. I say, brothers, you read the Bible and tell me something in the New Testament that we are not preaching. We are not all called to be. We are not all called to be evangelists. I am not an evangelist. I am a teacher. The Bible says God has called some to be apostles, some teachers, some evangelists, some healers. I don't have a healing gift. There are different gifts in the body of Christ. I can only fulfill what is mine. My calling is to be a teacher. <clears throat> there are others who are called to be evangelists who go to the different mission fields and preach the gospel. God bless them. They have done a great work. I praise the Lord. <clears throat> but they can't. They, it can't be just an evangelist. The evangelist must be followed on by the teacher and the apostles who plants churches. All together, Ephesians 4.11 speaks of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So, we need all those gifts. We have got evangelists in our churches who brought hundreds of people to Christ. Our churches are not full of people who came from Christianity to being born again. They came from non-Christian religions, many of them. Maybe 2,000 of them at least. Or more, I don't know. Not exactly how many. So we praise the Lord that we have evangelists. I'm not one of them. We work together, evangelists and teachers. and We have wonderful shepherds who care for the flock. Everything is there. So, And we've had opposition. A lot of opposition from churches who find that their best people come to our church. Oh, oh that's what bothers them. Why do they come? Because those are the ones who are seeking for more of God in their lives. Yeah, we are thankful for that. We're not, we don't grab anybody from any church. We don't tell anybody to leave your church and come here. Never, never, never. We tell, I tell people in TFC Bangalore, I say, if you're not a whole hearted disciple, you leave this church and go somewhere else. Do it the other way. Don't sit here if you're not a serious disciple of Jesus Christ, if you don't want to be a disciple. Not perfection. You can be a baby and be here, but you must want to be a disciple of Christ. That's all. That want to must be there. Even if you're not a perfect disciple, you want to. It's like a child going to school. I say, do you want to sit in the kindergarten the whole day? Or you want to go at least to finish the 12th grade? You want to. You're only in the kindergarten now. Never mind. You want to go to the 12th? Good. Join the school. I believe that's the type of people we need to gather in our churches who want to press on to perfection. We have a, a verse written on our pulpit in Bangalore, which is collected from Hebrews 6, verse 1. And the King James Version, which we use, it says, Let us leave the elementary principles of Christ and press on to perfection. James Version says, let us press on to perfection. That is our goal. So when we preach victory over sin, people say, you guys think you're perfect. I say, no, because of what's written on our pulpit. We are confessing that we are not perfect. We are saying we are pressing on to perfection. You people who never preach perfection are the ones who think you're perfect. We are publicly saying we are not perfect. We are pressing on to perfection. I have not reached the top of the mountain. Christ is there. The Apostle Paul is following him and say, follow me as I follow Christ. We are following Paul as he followed Christ. We are way behind, but we are moving forward, pressing on to perfection. That's the message we have proclaimed, and we are thankful for that. And uh, people oppose us, they oppose Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. Said, 
one of the passages that the Lord spoke to us very clearly was when we decided to go all the way with the Lord. Matthew chapter 10, very wonderful passage. Many times we were reminded of it. Matthew 10. Verse 24. Sorry. Uh, verse 16. I'll send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. That means don't harm anybody, but be very careful. Be as wise as a serpent. They will hand you over to the courts. Yeah, we've gone to court, for Christ's sake. And uh, when they don't worry about what you have to answer there, it will be given you, verse 19, what to say. Brother will betray brother, verse 21. That also we have seen. You'll be hated by people, verse 22. You've experienced that. The disciple is not above his master, verse 24. It's enough if the disciple is like his teacher. If they call the head of the house, Beelzebul means devil. They'll call you, I've been called the devil. Much more they'll malign the members of his household. I ask people, has anybody ever called you the devil? One of the privileges given to followers of Jesus. Verse 25. And don't be afraid of them. I tell people, you may be compromising. That's why nobody calls you the devil. Jesus was called the devil. If they call the head of the house the devil, how much more the members of his household? And I said, Lord, how to be a member of your household? People call us all types of names. Don't be afraid of them. What I tell you in the darkness, that means you listen to the Lord in the darkness in your home early morning, speak in the light. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't have me anxious. Not a hair of your head will perish. Verse 30, without the Father's permission. There are more value than many sparrows. You confess me boldly before men. Verse 32, I'll confess you before the Father. For the Lord said to me, are you ashamed to proclaim anything of this gospel, this wonderful gospel? You compromise and keep quiet in the presence of certain Christians because you want to be popular with them. You cannot be my disciple. Lord, I'll never do that. I'll proclaim the whole truth even if everybody rejects me. I remember the time when the early days I used to tell Annie, well, even if everybody says, no, we don't want this gospel and just you and me left, we'll still stick it out. We'll stand true to the Lord to the end. That's the only way to build a church. You must be willing to be alone. But I also want to say to the credit of Brother Ian who stood with me, 48 years we have worked together and I want to tell you in Jesus' name, there's never been a single day when we could not look at each other eye to eye with perfect fellowship. Every single day. We have disagreed. We have spoken openly. Brother, I disagree with you. But we'll work together. He has told me, Brother Zach, I don't agree. Fine, we work together. I haven't always agreed with my wife on everything. We've worked together and we live together and we're happy with each other. We love one another. We don't have to agree. But love. Didn't say you will all men will know you're my disciples when you agree with each other. Where's that verse? All men will know you're my disciples when you love one another. So I'll give you one example. Once there was a sister, an older sister in our church who was a widow his children were behaving very badly and bringing a bad name on the church. Really bad name. 
breaking into somebody's house. And I told Ian, I think we should put her out of the church. I told her she learned that. Because he's spoken to her and she doesn't do anything about it. Ian said, Zach, no, hang on, let's give her three months. Okay, him. Give up my will, I'll do what you say. Because we always agree that if one of us doesn't agree, he will stay. We're going to be united. We never did anything. For three months, she changed. Stayed with the church for years. Died, <laughs> the disciples. Thank you, and I'm glad I listened to you. There were other times where he listened to me. So we worked together. That's what my one example of disagreement. But where we disagreed, we would yield to one another. So we never broke fellowship all these 48 years. Name that promise. If two of you united, the devil can never get into your church. Find Satan, Matthew 18, verses 18 to 20. What you find will be bound in the heavenly. So that's how it has been. Two elders. Who is enough? Two or three. Stand in such a way completely united. They disagree, they disagree in love, just like you do with your wife. Yield to one another. Not always one person wanting to have his way. The devil will never, never be able to get into such a church. We have proved that for 48 years in value. So, that's a little bit of our history. The Lord has worked with us. We're far from perfect. We have our struggles. Uh, one, the other thing we did was we decided it would really help every widow, all widows. The Bible speaks about caring for the widows, the widows and the orphans. We make a list of them, and every year we help them financially. We've given them millions of rupees, poor people in the villages, and uh, their children. We check their how much, what marks they get in the 10th grade. I mean, they cannot afford to send them to college. We pay for their college education, the children of these poor widows. That's another ministry the church fulfills. Because we don't have any paid workers. We can use the offerings that come for such things. And in many places, they cannot meet in houses because our believers in most villages are not well off enough to have a big house. We rent a house from a non-Christian. You cannot have a Christian meeting here. And sometimes we have Christian meetings, they've closed it down. We say, Lord, we can't. Not, our brothers are not rich enough to have a big enough house for a meeting. Non Christian houses will not rent it to us, they'll throw us out. We have to build a church. So we're compelled to build meeting halls just for this reason. And the Lord has helped us to build many, many meeting halls in different, different places. We never borrowed one cent. Bank. There is no mortgage on any of our buildings. First of all, the bank won't give us a loan because they'll say, well, What's your income? We say, We trust the Lord. <laughs> Sorry, we can't give you on that basis. You get a regular income? No. Do you get regular offerings? No. In fact, we tell these all these people who have these qualities not to give. This offering box is they've got grudges against people who are not to give, etc. etc. No bank decided. We never even went to the bank. We knew. We know they said no, right? <laughs> but we have a bank in heaven, and the Lord provided. We've never, never lacked. We've had conferences 
for 2,000 people. We provide accommodation and food freely for all of them. Our Heavenly Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the silver and the gold in all the world. We're not foolish. We recognize our limitations. And, but we have operated on faith. Trust of the Lord. So we're very thankful. And we've had some wonderful elders that God's given us. We work with about 200 elders now. And many, many churches spread to many, many countries now. Thank God for those who have been gripped by the same desire. And God has raised up second level of leadership, just like Paul had Timothy and Titus. That's the most wonderful thing I see now. Folks who are 20 years younger than me, for another generation, 20, 30 years younger than me, who are overseeing churches and I tell them now you can appoint the elders and till now I used to appoint the elders, now they select and appoint the elders and if there's a problem they deal with it. Sometimes they can refer to me. It's very wonderful to see how we're trying to, you know, archaeologically through go through all the mud through. The full purpose of God is the apostles. So that in a nutshell is our history. Do you have any questions? You are welcome to ask. I wonder if you could also talk briefly on um, what are some of the dangers you face or dangers and uh, what has caused some to fall away. Yeah, not all the churches have leaders of the same quality. Then we select whoever is the most mature. We never, I'd never start a church unless one person at least is gripped in that place. I got it. We start usually in somebody's house. If, if nobody's gripped in a village, I say, no, I'm not going to do anything. One person must be thoroughly gripped and be willing to pay a price. Then we start meeting in his house. So we start with one, and then sometimes for a long time, it's just one elder. There's nobody else. And over a period of time, one more comes up. We always aim for a minimum of two. But then as the work has grown, a hundred churches all over here and there, it's difficult to keep track of everything. We've had one, two, three, I think, cases of who walked away with the building we built for them, walked away with the money. Don't they take it, go. never go well. It has not gone well with people who did that. You don't go fighting with them for property or money. Um, they were good brothers with us, elders, but well, they got offended because they were not given prominence, perhaps, in some place. Uh, it is, the percentage is very low. Not even 10%. We are very thankful. And we've been strict Wherever people have taken advantage of others, we have removed elders. Wherever an elder has fallen into sin, we examine it and examine with all the elders. And like it says publicly, move him. Do that in three cases. I mean, 
How do you think of two or three cases out of 200 elders? They're not a very high percentage. Then, I can't say all the elders are equally wholehearted. Paul had a Demas who forsook him. He says in Philippians 2, quite a statement. And verse 19, and 20, and 21. I'm going to send Timothy to you. Philippians 2, 20. I don't have anybody else like him will genuinely be consoled for your welfare. So among false co-workers, Timothy was unique. Nobody was anywhere near him. He says all the others are seeking their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. Paul also didn't have many co-workers who were like him and Timothy. Yeah, but we praise God. I mean, we have more than two or three. We have quite a number who are really large number. Most of our elders, I would say, are really glory of God and Part of the reason is Paul did not have email, Paul did not have WhatsApp, Paul did not have <laughs> cell phones, and because of all that, I mean, today, when Paul had a problem in Corinth, he had to write a letter, and the letter would take about three months to reach there, and the reply would come after three months. By then, the problem is multiplied, become big, whereas today, you can reach there the next day, take a flight and go there, or call up. And so, therefore, we have so many privileges that we don't have to have uh, that low level of commitment there was in that early, in those early days. Says, I don't have anybody else apart from Timothy. Who, they all seek their own interests. Paul had a few, Timothy, Titus, brothers, but then he also, in the same Philippians, he says in verse 2, about two sisters who were good sisters, but they were fighting with each other. And, he urges them to live in harmony with the Lord. Sisters who have, verse 3, shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These sisters who, oh, oh, a lot of sisters, they were fighting with each other. So Paul struggled in, of course, I had our struggle with a few, but God has helped us. He had tremendous emphasis on family. Teaching has been the church is a three-story building. Foundation is our Heavenly Father who runs the universe. Our Father who art in heaven, how we start our prayer. So the foundation of our faith in a Father who loves us and who runs the universe and can solve every problem. On that foundation, we build the first story, which is our personal walk with God with a good conscience. We emphasize that. Keep your conscience clear every day. On top of that is a second story, which is the family life. If you can't build up your, if you can't bring up your children properly, you're not fit to be an elder. He said that very clearly. I've removed elders whose children were wayward. Um, and we emphasize family life. Don't even think of building the church before we get families. So we have family meetings in all our conferences. We used to have family meetings for husbands and wives bringing up children properly. So we have a wonderful next generation of children growing up in all our churches who are following faithfully in the footsteps of their parents. Now, on top of that is the church, the church story. 
the church where we emphasize we have to be built together in one body where we care for one another, love one another, help one another. And, you know, in a poor country like India, this has also led to certain people coming to us just because they see we are a loving group of people, we'll help one another, we'd like to join this group because they'll help me when I'm in a difficult situation. So we made a rule that uh, we would not help anybody financially until he's proved for two years that he wants to be a disciple. Then we would be willing to help one another, but we had to be careful about that in a country like India where in the beginning we were not wise and we tried to help people who took advantage of us a lot. We don't mind it, we learned a lesson for it. That's one thing you have to be very careful in a poor country where you see the, the generous, loving church, they want to join for the wrong reason. We've had to be wise in that area. We emphasize strongly that sisters must veil their heads. Very easy in a country like India, because even the Hindu women always veil their heads. Custom in Indian religions, especially. But it was a problem when we started churches in the United States. Their church in California, the whole lot of families walked out when we taught veiling of the head. It's fine. Very small command. Jesus said, "Not one jot or tittle will in the law will fall away." Honestly fulfilled. So it's not that's not our main doctrine. Main doctrine is that we can overcome sin. Don't hesitate to proclaim the smaller truth as well. So family life has been something we majored on. That's another thing we found in many many churches did not proclaim. We found many pastors their children were wayward, and uh, many Christians their children were wayward and very bad testimony. Our children are wayward, something's wrong with the parents. So that's how it's been. But uh, we've uh, had some wonderful marriages. We've, uh, we have a matrimonial, or not a website, but section where we invite people to one. Brother maintains that list of people who their names and details of because in Indian society there's no such thing as dating and courting and all is unheard of. Culture is very different. So elders have to bring suggest come together. Parents do it in the other Indian families. Here are many people that come their parents are not believers, so the elders Another big responsibility we have as elders to suggest partners for someone in some other church that they don't even know. Then we ask them to meet each other and don't let them get married till they at least have met and talked to each other. They have to do the initial suggestion. We've had some very, very happy marriages. God has led us in that way. There are people who say we only want to marry somebody from CFC because we want someone of like mind. We thank God. You see, we are now 40 years means we are almost in the third generation of people. We're very thankful for even their being happy marriages. We are very thankful for families. 
out. Is there something else I missed out? Allowance for the woman who is a weaker vessel 
as temperamental weaknesses because she's a woman. Not thinking particularly of ours here. I don't know what your homes are like, but I'm talking about generally. But I've taught in family meetings in all of our not teaching children obedience from very first year. They are one year old. They must learn to obey. Relate. Have a problem with your child. I remember seeing one child in a home, just one year old, crawling up to the staircase. And from behind the father said, No! The way you say it also is important. It must be the military way. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the child may not have understood, no, but understood the tone of voice, turned around and not climb the stairs. Next day, or another day, when I was in that house and I saw the child going up to the stairs, turning around to see if daddy was there. That day I knew, even at one year, they can understand. They understand one word, no. Don't. I learned there that uh, it was strict with children to obey, or if they are rude. Anytime any of my children were rude to Annie, I would say, "Stop whatever you're doing. Don't apologize to her before you proceed." No, sometimes children can be under such tension they can say something rudely. They must not take that lightly. They must not speak rudely to dad or mom or to any older person. What I thought was, we have beggars coming to the gate regularly in, in Bangalore, in India. They go around gate to gate, knocking at the gate. and I said, don't ever be rude to a beggar. You speak rudely to that beggar. Go after him. If he's gone on to another place, go after him and say, I'm sorry, sir, for the way I spoke to you. Please forgive me. That's why you speak to a beggar. Apologize. Call him sir. That's what I taught my children. Never speak rudely to somebody. And don't think that somebody, because he's a beggar, he's inferior to you in society. Inferior to you as far as God is concerned. He's not. Circumstances have made him a beggar, but respect anybody older than you, whatever their economic level may be. Teach our children to respect others, it will go well with them. Must be very strict. I was very strict with all my children. I also know that we love them because we sacrificed so much for them. We had a very poor home. We couldn't afford much. And he and I sacrificed for the children. So there's no excuse. Children see that we give, we give them the best and we are strict with them for a period of time. They will follow the Lord. Many of your children are teenagers. Don't get discouraged if they have a few ups and downs. Normal for teenagers. You know that verse it says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's 30 years old, he will follow the Lord. 
little, I've added a little <laughs> age in there. But just to say that I found through the years that sometimes children go through a little up and down rumbling they have during their teenage years. Don't get disturbed. I love them and them through that difficult patch in their life because they think they're adults, but they're not adults. Courage them at that time. Some people go through sailing smoothly, but sometimes hang on to them and pray for them. Any of them used to claim one promise for our children. That is, two of you agree concerning anything in Matthew 18, 19 and 20. Shall be granted by my father. Our children face some problems in school with other children or with the teachers. We would pray for them, saying, Lord, we agree here as husband and wife. Please protect them. Some of the teachers didn't like our, didn't like me, because they belonged to the Brethren Assembly, and some of the Brethren people would join our church, and they didn't like that, and so they would sometimes take it out on our children. Pray for them, bless them. Uh, but we were, we were okay. So that's why it's very important for husband and wife to be united. You need it, very needed desperately as your children grow up. I did in prayer. God for anything to be granted. That's why the devil tries to bring disunity in the home so that children suffer. Yeah. So, I really don't know what your need is here in RLCS. The danger I feel could be sort of what I'd call a laid-back attitude. Because we have some good preachers here who will dare, the rest of you can take a laid-back attitude. Well with us. Very dangerous. Some of you should be growing up to maturity In a few years, some of you should be ready to fill the gap if the elders here feel that they need to reach out to other places. That won't You won't be ready for that overnight. You've got to really study God's Word. I don't know when all of you study God's Word. I started studying God's Word when I was 19, and I found by the time I was 26, I really knew it. Serious, and I and I was a working person those all those years. This to be a work. Just devote a certain amount of time, day, for the study of God's word. Yeah, I believe it can go well. As I should, God, I believe many of you should be able to minister God's word powerfully, even if it's just three four minutes. You're careless in the study of God's word. God's not going to back you up when you try to minister. So God has to see you're diligent. As much as you're diligent to make money, earn money, but say, Lord, I want to be diligent to procure spiritual wealth for my church, just like I'm procuring material wealth for the sake of my children. I must have that commitment to the local church. 
I want to acquire spiritual wealth to give my children here in this church. So this is my family. If you acquire material wealth working hard in order to be able to educate your children, the clothing for your children, do the same for the church. Everyone. So not doing it, please take this word of exhortation. Very dangerous when you have one or two people who are very gifted. Others can just sit back and say, okay, they'll do it all. Not be like all of us rise up to slowly more and more involved in the ministry. Not be called to be a teacher, but I believe all of you should come to the place where you can speak for three minutes. Powerful exhortation. At least once a month. It will really bless the church. Work towards it. The Word of God is the primary means by which church is built. Because we have many people doing that. Not just talking about a Sunday meeting or church meeting, even in your private conversation. If you all get to know the word, even in your just when you meet together with one another, you can bless each other. It's a wonderful time, you know. Informal conversations among people in the church, sitting together and sharing truths that they have discovered from scripture. Some of the very blessed times we used to have different people meeting like that. They don't come together not to gossip, but share something they received from the Word. And all of you work towards that. How wonderful your fellowship will be.